0: welcome to the vaccination station my name is dave and today i'm interviewing edward nirenberg thanks for joining me today
1: happy to be here
0: let's start by getting to know you tell me three things about yourself that you think the audience would find interesting
1: uh well, let's see uh I, I took a course on rock climbing in college for credit so i'm an expert obviously um uh let's see what else is there um At one point in my life, I actually really wanted to be and thought I would be an artist who like, like drawing basically, uh, I used to be really good at that. Uh, I haven't done it in a long time though. Um, and I would absolutely get a pet giant isopod and if your audience doesn't know what that is, they should Google it. It's, um, I I think they're very cute. I have not met a single person who agrees with me, but that's what
0: I think. So where did you study and what are your qualifications?
1: Uh, I've got a bachelor's of science from Cornell University where I studied biological sciences and completed a concentration in biochemistry. But despite that, uh, a lot of my coursework actually focused on human physiology and in particular immunology. Uh, when I was a freshman in my very first semester, there was a bit of a scheduling snuff who And I ended up taking the immunology survey course that was intended for senior biology students and their graduate students in the program who were just getting introduced to the subject. But I really enjoyed it. And one day I was asking the professor questions after class, and I guess she wasn't aware I was a freshman at the time or something. But she told me, you know what, you seem to have a knack for this. Take the graduate seminar next semester. So there I was um, in the graduate seminar, my second semester of college, the only undergrad there. Uh, which was really interesting. and It was really a big adjustment. That entire class was basically just taking current papers from leading journals and analyzing them and discussing them and the the exams were very intense. Uh, And then the semester after that, I continued and did the department's journal club, which for your audience might not be familiar, basically within a university. There are different departments that specialize in various things. So the Department of Microbiology and Immunology has a bunch of professors, but each of those professors might be looking at a very, very specific thing in the field. Like the head of the department when I was there was very focused on T cells and the lab that I was in focused on macrophages. So it's kind of hard to know what's essentially what's going on outside your field. So the journal club was kind of a way for people to expand their expertise basically by having the people who specialize in the topic of the Journal article that was being discussed. Explain it to everyone else, uh, and that was really interesting. It was a it was a very relaxed class. I I was still I was still 18 at the time, and it was so relaxed that they would bring out snacks and beer, and I was not allowed to drink it because the drinking age here is 21, and they would just all be drinking beer in front of me, just having a grand old time, and I, and I couldn't have any, <laughs> uh, which was fun, uh, funny rather. And while I was there, I also did, I mentioned that I worked in a lab and the lab studied a kind of cell called macrophages, which uh, their name is Greek for big eater. And basically the idea is you have a bunch of cells that are called uh, tissue resident macrophages, which are, they, they develop while you're still a fetus and they kind of seed your organs. Like you have a population of macrophages in your brain, you have some that are specific to your heart, some that are just in your intestines and so on. And they all have fairly unique functions, depending on where they are. Like for example, in the spleen, you have a population of macrophages that is really important for recycling iron. They're called metallophilic macrophages. They'll take up aged red blood cells and they ensure that the iron is distributed appropriately throughout the body. So the lab that I was in was really interesting in this thing that cells do that's called mechanosensing. Uh, so when we think about how cells respond to their environment, we typically think of things like hormones and proteins and nutrients and that sort of thing. But cells are actually much more sophisticated than that because cells can respond to the physical attributes of their environment as well. And they even have a skeleton called a cytoskeleton that can deform and change shape depending on what surface they're on. So the lab was basically concerned with how the stiffness of the surface affects how the macrophages behave, whether or not they promote or suppress inflammation. And the general finding was that cells that are on softer media tend to be more ready to promote inflammation. So, for example, there was like a medium that was so not stiff, basically, that it modeled blood. And those macrophages just were really ready to rip apart anything that you put in front of them. But there was also, we put them on glass, which is meant to model bone. And those were really kind of like, really didn't like, really didn't tolerate any kind of inflammation and actually worked to suppress it.
0: So what kind of use would this uh, research have then? Um, I'm guessing it's, it's related to the immune system and, and antibodies.
1: Uh, not so much antibodies, actually. Uh, the most direct application is actually in heart disease and atherosclerosis. So the plaques that you get uh, that are filled with cholesterol, macrophages are actually the cells that come up and try to clear it. And eventually what happens is you get a up of calcium and you get hardening of those plaques. And basically, this helps to clarify how the macrophages are behaving within them, so that hopefully one day you can modify them to change their behavior to be able to clear those plaques effectively, because right now, we're really not in a position where we can do that. And it also just generally helps with research, because a lot of immunology research is carried out with just specific cells. So it's important to be mindful of these kinds of things, because you could be influencing the results of your experiment, depending on what kind of surface you put your cells on.
0: So have you chosen an area of specialization yet or are you still weighing your options?
1: Well, it's probably too soon for me to answer that. I do really like immunology and I do think the cardiovascular system is also very interesting. And I think that the biochemistry that underlies it is very interesting. I I did still specialize in biochemistry. Um, For that reason, I also really like endocrinology. Uh, I think the nervous system is also really interesting, but I think that it's too much responsibility for me, (laughs) to be honest. Um hmm. no, that's that's a really hard question. I think I when I shadowed in um cardiothoracic surgery, I discovered that I find cardiothoracic surgery boring but cardiothoracic anesthesia interesting.
0: How did you first become interested in medicine as a career? Uh it,
1: it was it was pretty much an accident. A lot of things that happened in my life are accidents. I, I, I rarely do anything on purpose. Um Basically, I always really loved the science and I was taking AP Biology in high school, which is basically, um, uh, there's a system of courses called Advanced Placement Classes or AP that allow you to take courses in high school for college credit and they're considered more or less to be the equivalent of an introductory college level course. So I was a junior in high school and I was taking AP Biology and I, I really loved that I could really understand all the complexities of these different biological systems and put them together and think about how I could change them. Uh, so I really, really thought that I would be going into research because I really thought I didn't like people enough to be a doctor. Um, I, that was, uh, I, I sometimes like to joke that I'm a in remission. Um, and basically on a whim, I was in college and I kind of thought, well, okay, if I'm going to be researching, if I'm going to be at the bench in my lab uh, carrying out experiments to treat diseases, I need to understand the whole part of that. I need to understand how that works at the bedside as the clinician. So my university has a program called the urban semester program where we are connected to clinicians at our um, sister campuses hospital, Weill Cornell, and we're given opportunities to shadow. And while there, I was able to shadow in transplant surgery, cardiothoracic surgery, and the pediatric emergency room. And another component to that was a course on medical anthropology and an experiential learning uh, course, basically, where I went into a lower-income neighborhood in, uh, in New York. It was predominantly Hispanic, and I helped to prepare high school students for college, basically. Uh, I helped them uh, study for the tests and tutored them. I also helped them with college applications. Uh, we hosted a college fair for them, and I kind of realized that there was something instantly gratifying about that human side to medicine that I could never get at the bench. Uh, It was just like, even if I got very, very lucky and I think that it would have to be luck and I made some genuine breakthrough with my research, it would probably take many, many years to actually see the effects on the world. But when I was shadowing there, it was amazing how quickly you could affect positive change. Like when I was shadowing transplant surgery, I, uh, I, I went in to observe a kidney transplant. And it was just incredible how quickly the patient improved. And it was it was so fast. And I, I kind of realized that that might be a better direction for me.
0: How did you get into science communication?
1: Also by accident. As you can see, this is a theme in my life. Um, so before I got to university, I, I did know that anti-vaccine sentiment existed, um, but I thought it was this very fringe thing. It was, um, you know, it was those like weird corners of the internet, that no one really hangs out in. And then I was just browsing Facebook one day and I decided to like the CDC's page because they post good updates. And then I went through the comments and I was just really, I just remember feeling absolutely shocked. The amount of vitriol that the that they would put out, and it was just, it wasn't even like controversial stands. It was, it was really it, it sometimes it wasn't even related to vaccines. Like there were things about like prenatal screening or just general like pregnancy things I remember, and uh, they would come out in droves and say, "Don't get the flu vaccine" or "Don't get the pertussis vaccine," and it was just kind of shocking to me basically. And I I felt obligated, given that I had the knowledge to counter that misinformation, to speak up and say, well, hold on, that's not actually correct. And then that kind of took me down a black hole. And I've I've been here, basically.
0: (laughs) How has social media affected the way you communicate your knowledge and ideas?
1: I think that that's a really good question. It's, It's a little bit tricky. Um, one thing I've had to keep in mind when I talk about vaccines is that the odds are very, very high that my enthusiasm for the subject vastly exceeds that of the person I'm talking to. Um, so that, uh, that's been important to keep in mind. Um, but at the same time, I, I think about that quote Einstein, that everything should be made as simple as possible, but no simpler so in general when i try to address a myth i don't generally just leave it at that's not true here's the data i try to also give people principles so that they aren't taken in by that kind of poor thinking again a big one that often comes up because people tend to fixate on it is ingredients and vaccines and they point out that for example that formaldehyde is a carcinogen uh and then i usually uh, give them that little tutorial about how toxicology works and the first law of toxicology, you know, from paracelsus, all things are poison for there is nothing without poisonous qualities. It is only the dose which makes the poison. Uh, And that's really a big, uh, a big theme in a lot of vaccine hesitancy. Uh, And I mean, I also uh, did a tweet recently because with COVID-19 and everything, everyone's kind of fixated on this idea of boosting your immune system. And I basically focused on why you can't do that and why that's not a good idea and the general theme i've noticed is people are smarter than you think but they have shorter attention spans than you want
0: that's certainly been my experience um running a a provex facebook page for just over a year now so yeah there's uh there's a lot in there that i can relate to are you involved in any formal social media initiatives right now
1: Well, I'm involved with several groups that work to systematically counter vaccine hesitancy as it arises. But I'm not sure whether or not you can call them formal. They're they're pretty grassroots. It's just some experts in public health, medicine, social sciences, and well, me. (laughs) Uh, Mostly we just try to enforce a science-based presence on social media where it's needed uh, and to enforce basically positive vaccine sentiment, but also be forthcoming about the risks.
0: So now that we're on to the subject of vaccines, let's talk about herd immunity. For the benefit of the audience, some of whom might not be familiar with the term, can you explain what herd immunity is and how we achieve it?
1: Absolutely. This gets a little bit involved, though, so just bear with me. Um, it's gotten, it's, this has gotten to be like a really hot topic lately with COVID-19 because everyone kind of just wants it to be over. Um, But unfortunately, as I have to keep reminding people, even though we're very much over the pandemic, the pandemic is not over. So basically, it starts with this notion that when a critical portion of the population is immune to a disease, that disease can no longer effectively spread throughout the population. Uh, And this comes from this model in infectious disease, which gets a lot, uh, infectious disease epidemiology, I should say, which gets a lot of use, which is called the SIR model, and it's an acronym. The S stands for susceptible, the I stands for infected, and the R is for recovered. It basically says that for any given outbreak of infectious disease, you you will be able to classify people in the population as either being uh, susceptible, infected, or recovered. Um, And the general theme is, you can deplete the pool of susceptible people to stop transmission of that disease. So the idea in more mathematical terms, we have this variable we call R. And R is what's known as, uh, excuse me, R-naught. R-naught is the basic reproduction number. It basically says that for a given infectious disease, on average, a person who is infected will pass it on to that number of people. So for example, measles is commonly thought of uh, as the most infectious, most communicable infectious disease we have. And it's r naught is usually estimated to be somewhere between 12 and 18. So what that means is for every person who gets measles, they will give it to 12 people who don't have immunity to measles. And those people will give it to 12 to 18 people who don't have immunity to measles. And you can see how an outbreak just explodes like that. Um, so the idea is that you need to make r which is the effective reproductive number less than one because what that means is on average each person will pass it on to less than one person which means that the size of the outbreak is progressively shrinking uh and generally that's achieved uh it can be achieved through a couple of ways one thought that's become really popular with pandemics is to achieve this at least while we don't have a vaccine with non-pharmacological interventions. so things like distancing mask wearing avoiding gathering in crowds that can go a very long way. And in fact, some states in America have managed to bring R to less than one uh, through these interventions. But the problem is when people stop those interventions, because when that happens, you start getting more infections and eventually R starts to rise above one and then you reach a state where the size of the outbreak is growing. And another important variable that doesn't really get talked about enough uh, because it's, it's a little bit more sophisticated is what's known as K or the dispersion factor. And basically this reflects the fact that not everyone will spread a given infection equally well. In general there's kind of an 80-20 rule where only about 20 percent of people in an outbreak will actually be responsible for most of the spread and in particular some of those people will be what's known as super spreaders. They they are especially effective at spreading disease. So for example in South Korea there was a woman who is known as patient 31. She did not isolate when she developed symptoms of COVID-19 And through contact tracing, it was determined that she was responsible for over 1,000 infections. However, the R-naught of SARS-CoV-2 is typically estimated to be between two and three. So to to remind you, that basically means that someone who has COVID-19 will pass SARS-CoV-2 to between two or three people on average. So either two or three. You can't pass it to part of a person, Rather, it's an average. Um, So... There are both social reasons, like from, in the case of patient 31, basically, she had symptoms, she didn't isolate, she went to a service in church, she visited some very populous, densely packed spaces, uh, and as a result, you get a thousand secondary cases from her. Uh, but sometimes there are biological explanations. Uh, so for example, there is a type of bacteria, E. coli, which we all have, but periodically you might hear of outbreaks of E. coli. And generally we're concerned about a type of E. coli that's called E. coli 0157H7, which is dangerous because it carries a special toxin, which we call shiga-like toxin. And it causes a really devastating condition called hemolytic uremic syndrome, which can be devastating. It can cause low platelets, it can cause anemia, and most seriously, it can cause renal failure. So we get it essentially from contaminated food. The cows are colonized by it and it's spread in their feces. And as it turns out, cows that have this bacteria on their anal rectal junction just shed more of the E. coli, which uh, which accounts for excess spread. The thing about super spreaders that's really important is it actually means that you might be able to get around some of the basic ideas regarding herd immunity and the SIR model, regarding a threshold for vaccination, because of the fact that not everyone spreads it equally. So in other words, it might be more important to immunize some people than others, because some people will be responsible for more of the spread than other people. But of course, we have no way of knowing in advance who the super spreaders are going to be. So for that reason, it's important that everyone who can be immunized for a given disease is immunized. And even more than that, I would add that it's not all about just bringing R to less than one, because R less than one doesn't mean that you stop getting cases. R less than one means that the size of your epidemic is shrinking. It still means that people are getting sick. It still means that they're potentially dying or developing permanent lifelong consequences of that infection.
0: We are now more than six months into the coronavirus pandemic. And broadly speaking, there are two schools of thought regarding the best way forward. One says we must learn to live with it and just get on with life as normally as possible. And we've seen elements of that mentality in the UK and Sweden, for example. And the other says we must aim to eliminate it by achieving herd immunity. Which do you think is the best approach, or, or is there a third way you'd like to submit?
1: It's it's hard for me to stay measured when I talk about this. I think that I think that there is only one viable solution forward, and it is the path of herd immunity. And more than that, it is the path of herd immunity through a vaccine. For one thing. As far as I'm aware, there has not been a single outbreak of infectious disease in history, which has been solved through herd immunity induced by infection. And that has absolutely monstrous costs in terms of the human lives and the suffering. Um, And frankly, I hesitate to even call that herd immunity because it's basically thinly veiled eugenics. You're feeding people to the infection. Whoever it kills, it kills. Whoever survives and gets immunity, survives and gets immunity. And you end up creating a buffer. Um, and I think that's shown quite well with the fact that Sweden had over 13 times the number of deceased individuals uh, through the fact that they didn't attempt to mitigate their outbreak than then did their geographic neighbors. Um, I think that some people have put forward that eventually way into the future, SARS-CoV-2 will become like the common cold coronaviruses, and it'll just be a permanent fixture of the seasons basically uh, just appearing in the winter when it gets cold and not really causing any severe disease but we are still quite a ways away from that and right now our focus needs to be on getting a viable vaccine out there that can at least prevent disease and getting good therapies out there and enhancing methods of diagnosing and doing so frequently. I'd also add that right now the big goal that we have for our vaccines isn't necessarily to permanently stop infection because that isn't entirely realistic. Instead, the goal is basically to prevent severe disease. And that actually should be enough to make a huge, huge difference once we can get an effective vaccination campaign going. Uh, And I would also point out that the one very good thing, one thing that we're very, very lucky about is that SARS-CoV-2 has a lot of stability as an ant- from an antigenic perspective, meaning that even though you keep hearing about these new genotypes popping up, um, people keep calling them strains. They're not actually strains. The immune system still sees them as the same virus and it's still able to respond to them. So in that regard, I'm cautiously optimistic about the prospect of a vaccine. And I think that with the next generation of vaccines, we will really have it down. But I do honestly think And I don't really have any good justification for this. Maybe it's just blind optimism, but I do think that right now in phase three trials, one of those vaccines is going to make it to licensure and it's going to have a profound impact on public health once we can start vaccinating.
0: There's been a lot of talk about multiple waves of coronavirus through communities, through countries. Some countries are said to have experienced a second wave and some are even bracing for a third. What is a wave in this context? What does that mean? And, and how is a wave caused? I mean, if coronavirus is already in the community, where does the extra wave of coronavirus come from? What does that mean?
1: That's a good question. Um, I recently actually saw a headline that suggested that, that, that it said something to the effect that parts of the U.S. might even be, might be bracing for a third wave of coronavirus. And this was just so confusing to me because, as far as I'm concerned, we've only had one wave. Um, So I'll I'll explain that now. Um, In essence, when people refer to a wave in the context of an epidemic, they're referring to this rapid influx of infectious disease, this sudden rise of cases. So that like, if you plot it on a graph basically of cases versus time, you get kind of a hump basically. And then eventually the measures to control the epidemic start to take effect and it starts to slow down and they eventually start decreasing. So you get this kind of wave shape to it. So in essence, when you talk about a second wave, that suggests that you had the epidemic under control and now you have another influx of cases. And I just thought that was really funny in the context of the US because we, I don't think, have ever had this under control. Um, And it's been utterly demoralizing to watch. It's been really horrifying to me. But beyond that, uh, a good analogy I think to understand this is with the 1918 flu pandemic, which people continue to draw comparisons to for better or for worse. And basically, the way we think of that one is that there were three waves. There were, in other words, there were three distinct points where the epidemic seemed to peak and then decline. And you, what happened was the first wave wasn't terrible. We were able to bring it under control and the cases dropped, but then people relaxed, people relaxed. And then there was a second wave. And then that second wave, people, its said it's responsible for the bulk of deaths throughout that pandemic. Um, and, As for what causes waves, it's a little bit murky. Mostly, I think social factors are to blame. It's basically people think that the pandemic is over, but it's not over. It's just quieter, and they start to relax. They start to ignore masking, or they start to gather in large groups, uh, or they basically think that they can return to normalcy. But as you said, the virus is still there in the community. It's not as prevalent, but it's still there, which means it can still spread. It's also in principle conceivable that there's a mutation that arises basically that people don't have pre-existing immunity to, at least theoretically. But as far as I'm aware, that I don't know of examples in history where that's happened. Um, and I will say that again, right now, there isn't good evidence from multiple strains of SARS-CoV-2 as far as we're concerned. Right now, all the evidence seems to suggest it's very antigenically stable, which is very good news. And if we do experience multiple waves, it will, almost certainly be entirely because of social factors.
0: As you say, the the stability of the virus is very good news, particularly when we consider the plans for a vaccine to fight it, because of obviously we want a vaccine to be able to deal with the the virus as we know it in its current form, and if, if it changes too rapidly that will present a significant problem as it does with the seasonal flu every year but with a stable virus, we can produce one vaccine which will be effective for many, many years to come as as with measles and, and other communicable diseases. So, how close are we to a vaccine for this particular coronavirus? I know that's a difficult question to answer because there are so many different countries working on different vaccines at different speeds. And there's become a bit of an arms race, I think, now with uh, Russia trying very hard to push this out as fast as possible. Um, Vladimir Putin has said he, he expects them to be the first. Donald Trump in the US has said that, he is developing or he is encouraging the scientists to develop it at warp speed so that they can try and have one up by the end of the year. To the average person, this sounds a bit alarming because we're accustomed to the idea that vaccines actually take quite a long time to develop and necessarily so. So, on this subject, how close do you think we are to uh, getting a vaccine and how can the vaccine? development process be accelerated in in the way that Russia and and the US for example are attempting to do
1: well in the case of Russia it's very easy you just ignore any need for data and you throw out whatever is there their article in the Lancet seems to have falsified data which is quite horrifying Um, so we have actually no idea whether or not that vaccine works at all Um, and even the concepts I think should probably be abandoned of trying to use an adenovirus vector for it because people the immunity to those adenovirus vectors seems to be prevalent enough that there's the risk that people will respond to the vector but not the component of sars cov 2 on it the spike protein. Uh, so I really don't think that that's a viable direction forward. But as far as how close we are, that's a tricky question. I think probably there will be at least one vaccine that is licensed by summer 2021. And I think by early 2022, it will be widely available for the public. Um, But it really depends entirely on how the phase three trials go. And in particular, one thing that we're always very worried about for especially for respiratory viruses is this concept of vaccine enhanced disease, which mostly comes from attempts to make a vaccine against respiratory syncytial virus or RSV which is a very serious disease in newborns and actually also in the elderly people often forget about that, uh, that it affects the elderly quite seriously too. But basically in the 1960s, we attempted to make the vaccine in the standard way that we make a lot of vaccines, which is by inactivating the virus. So that was done by using formalin and uh, children were given an injection in Washington in a hospital. And then some of them developed RSV, but the horrifying part was those children who developed RSV, Um, who were vaccinated had more severe disease than those who were unvaccinated and furthermore a few children died and that has been a problem with almost every attempt to make any RSV vaccine that we've had and we've only kind of just started to be able to work around that and clinical trials are actually underway for a candidate that won't do that but as for uh, SARS-CoV-2 SARS-CoV-2 is a different kind of virus it's not in the same family but In animal models, there was some evidence of enhanced disease observed when we attempted to make vaccines for SARS coronavirus, the original one, in 2002 and 2003. Um, So we were very, very cautious based on that, and we had a good baseline to work with when uh, proposals were being made for a vaccine. Um, However, I should point out that Evidence of enhanced disease in animals doesn't necessarily correlate to the fact that it will occur in humans. That's actually been a really big problem. One of the concerns that we have is what's called antibody dependent enhancement, which is where the disease gets worse because of the antibodies that people make against the virus. Um, and the scary thing about it is there's no real good way, there's no real good experimental model for us to be able to see whether or not this is a real risk. But there is probably some encouraging news in that we've been using convalescent plasma from people who've had the virus and uh, transfusing patients with it who are seriously ill, and they don't seem to have evidence of enhanced disease. So it's probable that those concerns are entirely theoretical in nature. Um, The nature of the enhanced disease, the other concern, uh, which I think we'll elaborate on later, is that you get essentially an allergic reaction to the virus. And this was basically why approaches with an inactivated vaccine um, were more or less discouraged, though I know that there are many inactivated vaccine candidates from China. And that's a really popular way to make a vaccine because you don't need to know really anything about the virus. You can just kind of uh, prevent it from replicating and hope that the antigens stay intact and give it to the patient for their immune system to respond to, but it doesn't always work, unfortunately. Uh, HIV, for example, the antigens don't survive the inactivation process, so that's always been a major barrier to getting a good vaccine out. Um, But as for why we can rush this, is largely because uh, the government is making, is providing money for pharmaceutical companies to make the vaccine at risk. So normally, what that means really is it's a financial risk. Um, So normally the clinical trial process has a phase one, a phase two, a phase three, and then the vaccine is petitioned for licensure and then evaluation of safety and efficacy is continued through phase four. And basically phase one is just a very simple safety study. It's to rule out any so-called gross toxicities. You give it to a bunch of volunteers and you make sure that it's relatively safe. And this is where you'd usually figure out the dosage So it was big news. I remember when Moderna um, was doing their phase one study, one of the participants had a fairly severe reaction to the high dose vaccine. He basically developed a high enough fever that he kind of um, lost consciousness and almost got hurt. Uh, But it let them know that they shouldn't use a higher dose of that vaccine. And they switched to their medium dose, which seems to have the same immunogenicity, which means that it promoted an immune response as effectively, but without that adverse effects profile. Now, normally what a pharmaceutical company would do is they basically try a phase two trial where it's the concept is similar to a phase three trial or excuse me, a phase one study, um, but it, it involves more people. And basically the point of that is not really scientific. It's more to make it clear to the pharmaceutical company that this is a product that it's worth investing the millions of dollars in. But because the government is providing the money for it, they don't need to do that. So they were basically allowed to skip to phase three. And phase three is the only point at which we can actually determine whether or not the vaccine works. Because the thing is, even though a vaccine makes an immune response, that's something that you can observe in the phase one studies, we don't actually have any idea ahead of time whether or not that immune response is actually going to protect people from disease, unfortunately. So that's what the phase three study is. It involves gathering, I think the smallest study right now has 30,000 participants and there's a control group and a treatment group and it's randomized and you wait for people to get a certain number of infections, I think that the threshold right now is 150, and then you break the blind and you compare the risk of getting infected, or um, in this case, they're also looking at the severity of disease, so the risk of getting severe disease in the vaccinated versus the unvaccinated group. And if the vaccine, I think the threshold the FDA set out was 50%, uh, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, I believe, set a threshold of 80% reduction in uh, the severity of disease. Uh, they will petition for licensure. So in essence, these shortcuts, it's because we're able to do it in large part because we've skipped a lot of the bureaucratic steps where we would basically have to convince the pharmaceutical companies, yes, this is something you should pursue. And we have a strong baseline from many attempts to make vaccines against other coronaviruses. And in fact, some successfully because there are veterinary coronavirus vaccines um, and that's why we're able to do it this quickly. And I don't personally find that aspect of it concerning, the speed.
0: So we've got plenty of research we can draw on already. We have some pre-existing coronavirus vaccines for animals that we can use as a, a model, and that allows us to skip some steps which, as you say, are, are largely bureaucratic and, and mechanical rather than scientific
1: if we were purely interested in the science, we honestly could just throw out a vaccine and just go straight to a phase three study. But the reality is that it's not enough to prove that it's effective, we have to make sure that it's safe, and that's generally a stepwise process. And pharmaceutical companies, contrary to what many anti-vaxxers might tell you, don't like being open to liabilities, and they don't want to be responsible for producing a product that sickens people.
0: The mortality rate for this particular coronavirus seems to vary considerably d- between different countries because I, I understand there are multiple factors that affect its uh, severity and its capacity to cause lasting harm or, or even death. So I, I know there are a number of comorbidities which are significant, like older age or obesity. Does this complicate our ability to calculate herd immunity? And are we any closer to figuring out the herd immunity threshold for this virus?
1: Well, the herd immunity threshold is based on the reproduction number, which we know to be between two and three. So we can reliably say that if we can get, give or take 70% of the population to be immune, we will reliably have attained herd immunity. The other thing that you have to keep in mind though is herd immunity is a local phenomenon, meaning that if you have, for example, a vaccine that's very, very effective and in some communities you have almost 100% uptake, but then you have that one community where uptake is around 40%, even though the average rate of vaccine receipt and overall herd immunity as a result is around 70%, that community with a low vaccination rate is still susceptible to outbreak. And that's something that we know quite well from measles. Um, As for heard um i'm sorry what were the other questions
0: (laughs) sorry yeah um i was just saying that are we any closer to, to determining what the herd immunity threshold is? You've pretty much answered that. You said it's it's around 70%. And that leads me to my next question, which is, do we know if there's any country that has begun to approach this threshold naturally in the absence of a vaccine? Because, of course, that is one argument that's being used in, in some quarters. Um, to say, you know, we, we don't really need a vaccine, we can get used to this virus and we can naturally develop herd immunity and that will be sufficient to keep it under control.
1: Oh boy. Um, I think that the path to herd immunity without a vaccine has absolutely monstrous costs. And I sincerely hope that no country has that as a plan, um, especially now. I know that in back here in the US, we have a senator who, I, I will refrain from commenting on my views on him, but suffice it to say, he alluded to the suggestion that New York is near herd immunity because zero prevalence of the virus, um, the, the proportion of people who have antibodies is somewhere around twenty percent, and this is just absolutely delusional. There, there, uh, as I said before, owing to the heterogeneity, that variable K, you can sometimes achieve herd immunity at levels of, uh, vaccination below what the threshold might suggest, but not something so dramatic as to go from 70% to 20%. That's just absurd. Um, and it's just, it's not viable. I know, um, so there was a perspective piece in the New England Journal of Medicine that talked about the possibility for masks to, uh, be, to essentially kind of substitute for the role of vaccines because they filter out, some proportion of virus, but some people might get a smaller dose and this would grant immunity in the way that variolation did in the past uh, with uh, smallpox when it was first discovered. But I really don't think that has potential. A major component to variolation is the fact that it was done through a different route because smallpox results generally when you inhale the virus, whereas variolation was done through the skin. So the disease you get is very different and it's much milder. and that has some concern. People should absolutely still be wearing masks, especially in circumstances that they can't distance from each other. And also, given what's been emerging regarding the ability of the virus to transmit it, it, it as an aerosol pretty much all times that they're in public. But it's important not to oversell the importance and suggest things like that the, that the masks can, cause, uh, can let us achieve herd immunity.
0: So is it possible for people to become reinfected with SARS-CoV-2 uh, after they've already had it? Or do, we, do we have any solid data on that? Or, or can we safely conclude that anyone who's caught at once now has natural immunity?
1: I think that when it comes to this, there are no safe assumptions. There have been documented reinfections with, uh, and they've been, that's been proven not to be clear, it's not long COVID where they're well for a long time and they suddenly seem to get a relapse, which does sometimes happen, but it's been shown that people can become reinfected with a genetically distinct virus. Uh, and I, as far as I'm aware, I know of two cases. In one of the cases, the patient basically didn't mount a very good antibody response the first time and their second case they tested positive but they were asymptomatic in the second case the patient had the infection once and it was relatively mild but then the second time they got it, it was worse the big question though isn't so much is reinfection possible as much as is it common? So, for example, you mentioned how measles grants very good durable immunity, but if you look hard in the literature, you can still find reports of people becoming reinfected with it. And that's really the concern from a public health perspective. Um, I've seen people point to this with concern about what this means for a vaccine, but the answer is actually probably not very much at all because, well, for several reasons. One one of the big reasons, I think, is there was a study uh, that was in Cell where they performed autopsies on patients who had died of severe COVID-19, and they found a really important immunological anomaly, which is that their lymph nodes seemingly were really, really deficient in this structure called a germinal center. And that's important because those long-lived antibodies that provide good, durable protection are made through interactions that occur at the germinal centers. So what that suggests potentially is that one of the mechanisms, and we still don't really understand the mechanisms actually by which we can keep getting reinfected with different coronaviruses because they're pretty genetically stable. So it's not like the flu where there are just so many strains because the flu actually, if you get infected, you have immunity for a long time, but because there are so many strains, you can still get sick. Um, with coronaviruses, it's really unclear and the limit of the common cold coronaviruses seems to be about six months and then people start getting cases again, that most of which are really mild, but can still potentially be problems. Um, so as far as what that means for a vaccine, because most vaccines actually work in large part by helping to induce those germinal center structures in the lymph node and generate those durable antibody responses. And in large part because of the vaccines, won't have the pathogenic capabilities that the virus does. I think that this is actually probably good news as far as the durability of the immunity that can be conferred by a vaccine as opposed to what comes from the infection. But as for how common or how important reinfection is, that's still pretty unknown. Unfortunately, it's still a little early in the pandemic for us to really understand that.
0: Even without the possibility of reinfection. There are many concerns about permanent damage to people who've had the virus once and are still suffering from the effects. Now given that this pandemic has only been a pandemic for you know just over six months, I understand that it's difficult for the doctors and scientists to calculate longer-term effects of the virus on on a person's immune system or or on a person's health in general. But do we have any clues yet about the possible long-term effects of contracting SARS-CoV-2?
1: We do have clues, and they aren't inspiring optimism. Um, So there's a lot we don't know as far as long-term sequelae, they're called, of COVID-19. There was a, We have a study that showed that as many as 87.4% of patients still had some kind of residual symptoms on average two months after the infection, which is a huge percentage. Um, most commonly, this is like myalgia, so like joint pain or fatigue or mental fogginess, which um, can still be very disruptive, even though they're not necessarily severe. They can really interfere with daily life a great deal. Um... There's also emerging evidence of what's called myocarditis, which is inflammation of the heart muscle. Um, And the significance of that right now is not very clear. In some cases, it's meaningless. In some cases, it's so severe that patients would require a heart transplant. Um, So that's very concerning. Um, Around May, I got very concerned about one particular thing. Uh, So there was a review at that time from JAMA Neurology Journal of the American Medical Association's neurology um, journal that discussed the possibility of neuroinvasion of the virus, um, literally whether or not it could infect the brain. And we knew at the time that the receptor of the virus used was ACE2. So one of the focuses of the paper, of the review, was to discuss where ACE2 is on the brain so that you could kind of predict what kind of pathology would result if the virus were able to get in. And one of the things that I found very, very alarming was that ACE2 has very high expression in a region of the brain called the substantia nigra. And that's very concerning because if you destroy the substantia nigra, you develop Parkinson's disease. So the possibility exists that in principle, the virus could end up in the brain, in fact, the cells of the substantia nigra, killing them and produce Parkinson's disease. And for a while, I hoped that that wouldn't be the case because um, there there were a few reasons that we were concerned about neurologic effects. One of the big things is that people first notice or or suspect that they have SARS-CoV-2 infection, COVID-19, when they develop loss of sense of smell or loss of sense of taste. And that often indicates some kind of neurological involvement, although it doesn't have to. And in essence, several lines of evidence have emerged that seem to hint that it's possible that my suspicions were accurate, because another study on autopsy patients has confirmed that the virus can indeed infect brain cells, which is relatively unusual, even for viruses that do seem to cause neurological effects. That's not very common. For example, influenza um, can occasionally cause a devastating condition called necrotizing encephalopathy, where parts of the brain just basically start dying And that's thought to be um, not as a result of the virus infecting brain cells, but as a result of the cells committing suicide um, through a combination of factors relating to cytokines and uh, getting oxygen. So that's very scary. But um, after the 1918 influenza pandemic, there was a wave of an illness called encephalitis lethargica. And this illness, well, it's got... (laughs) Uh, It it has some really funky symptoms. It's got, you you get fevers, you get disorders of the way that your eyes move, and you get disorders of sleep, and you get a Parkinson's-like illness. And it's still not clear whether or not the pandemic influenza was responsible for this. It just emerged after, so we're not sure. But there has now been a case report of a person who had no genetic risk factors for Parkinson's disease, no known anyway who after COVID-19 developed Parkinson's disease. Um, So I'm very concerned about the possibility of a wave of Parkinsonism once we bring this pandemic under heel. I imagine that it's relatively rare that it would happen, but I think that it is possible. But again, a lot more evidence is needed to confirm whether or not that is the
0: case. Thank you. That was extremely informative, but also massively depressing. I'm
1: very sorry. That's what I do.
0: (laughs) So uh, let's move back to vaccines where I I feel a little more confident.
1: It's very cheerful there.
0: The Lancet recently published a 14-year follow-up study of Nordic women who had received the HPV vaccine. And these results were overwhelmingly positive. They showed that this vaccine prevents many types of cancer. Now, I understand how a vaccine can prevent viral infection, for example, by training the body to produce antibodies against a disease but how can a vaccine prevent cancer? What is the mechanism involved here?
1: All right, I'm gonna put my biochemist hat on for a minute um, and we'll talk about this. So uh, one of the big things that we commonly think about of cancer, one of the things that we don't think about is that it could be contagious. And formally speaking, it isn't contagious, but as many as 20% of human cancers are actually caused by viruses. So some of the big offenders, there's um, human T lymphotrophic virus one, which can cause a T cell leukemia, HIV one, which causes basically any cancer potentially for, from, for several reasons. Hepatitis B and C virus can both cause cancer of the liver called hepatocellular carcinoma. Epstein-Barr virus can cause Burkitt's lymphoma. Kaposi uh, sarcoma herpes virus, which a lot of people have, but generally doesn't cause disease unless you also have HIV can cause three different cancers, Kaposi sarcoma, primary fusion lymphoma, multi-centric Castleman's disease. Uh, and you also there's also Merkel cell polyoma virus, which can cause uh, cancer of the Merkel cells, which are these receptors in the skin. Uh, and of course, HPV, which causes cancer of the cervix, penis, anus, genitals, head and neck. And it's actually the leading cause of head and neck cancer. It's still responsible for about three quarters of them, which is terrible. So. There's some really important history that goes into the question of what actually caused cancer. Uh, In the early days, there were a few ideas. The virologist said it was the viruses. The viruses caused cancer. uh, The epidemiologist said, no, it's got to be the chemical exposures. Uh, And then there was a third school of thought that not that many people believed in that said, no, no, it's because of genetic issues. And in fact, all three people were right. Uh, Cancer arises from all three of those things, but fortunately, it's not very easy to cause cancer in general. Uh, Generally, a cell needs on average about 12 mutations uh, in certain kinds of genes for it to become cancer. Uh, And it's actually not terribly hard to understand how that can come about. Uh, But we need to be familiar with the vocabulary here a little bit, so let me get into that. Uh, Firstly, when it comes to cancer, there are three types of genes that we care about. There are the oncogenes, or more properly proto-oncogenes. They become oncogenes once they mutate. Tumor suppressor genes <clears throat> and genome maintenance genes. And basically, the idea is that all cells have a cycle that they go through that controls their division. And cancer occurs when this the cell's division basically doesn't follow this cycle anymore, when it becomes detached from it. And you can imagine that the requirements for a cell to do this are fairly extensive. So the cell cycle actually isn't that complicated uh, when you examine it basically at least uh it has four parts to it and it's got three checkpoints so the first one is called g1 which stands for gap one and that is a pretty boring phase the cell is basically just growing it's acquiring nutrients it's carrying out its usual functions and then you got a checkpoint before it gets it goes on to the next phase which is s which stands for synthesis and that checkpoint basically confirms that the cell is the right size it has enough nutrients And it doesn't have DNA damage. If the cell meets those criteria it can pass into the S phase and at this point if the cell enters the S phase it is absolutely irreversibly committed to cell division it will eventually divide. Um, So during S phase the cell is duplicating everything inside of it because it's now committed to division it has to split everything inside into two cells. Then there's a second checkpoint before it enters the next phase gap two or G2 which is where you ensure that DNA replication is complete and there's no damage to the DNA. Once that happens, you enter the M phase, which, is, which stands for mitosis or meiosis, if you're talking about sex, uh, the gametes, the cells that are responsible for the production of, for reproduction of uh, organisms. <clears throat> and basically, in this process, the duplicated chromosomes kind of have to be pulled apart from each other. And that process is mediated by a structure called the mitotic spindle. And there's a checkpoint there that makes sure that it's properly attached so that each cell ends up with all the right chromosomes because otherwise you can get a cell that has extra chromosomes and a cell that doesn't have enough. So the genes that promote passage through this process are called proto-oncogenes. And the genes that suppress this process are called tumor suppressor genes. And genome maintenance genes are there throughout to basically ensure that the genome is stable, that it's not constantly acquiring mutations and everything. The thing is that as cells grow and divide, they will always gain some kind of mutations. And most of the time, that's actually not a big deal. Most mutations tend to be neutral. A few of them are bad and even fewer of them are good, but most of them it's not really a big deal. And basically to deal with this, we have this thing called a Hayflick limit. So the Hayflick limit is the number of times that a cell is allowed to divide before it commits suicide or what's, what the cell biologists call apoptosis, where there's a second silent P because people are Greek and Greeks have to make everything complicated because just look at democracy. Um, and so as I said earlier, cancer doesn't just happen, right? Uh, I had a biology teacher once tell me that if you look at the nucleus of a cancer cell, it's like a bomb went off. It, there are really profound genetic anomalies that result. So the idea is there's something called the two-hit hypothesis, uh, which says that you, you have two copies of every single gene. So to get cancer, you need at a minimum mutations in both copies of a tumor suppressor gene. And you can also have mutations in your oncogenes that make them more active, uh, in, in your proto-oncogenes, excuse me, that turn them into oncogenes and make them more active. So that's the basic idea behind how cancer happens. Um, so generally when viruses cause cancer, it's kind of accidental, uh, but basically the idea is that HPV has a couple of proteins. Um, Two really important ones, though. They're called E6 and E7. E7 is the big one. It targets, well, actually, they're both big. I shouldn't say that. E7 targets a family of proteins called the retinoblastoma proteins, and they're so named because they were found mutated in cancers of the retina, or retinoblastomas, and they prevent progression in the cell cycle, basically. So E7 basically binds to them inside the cell and ensures that they get destroyed. So now you don't have that checkpoint to keep the cell from progressing in the cell cycle, making sure that it's DNA is damaged and all that. The thing is you have another backup. You have something called P53 or what's commonly known as the guardian angel of the genome. And it's another checkpoint. It's another tumor suppressor gene. And it can actually, if the DNA damage is too extensive, it can actually cause the cell to commit suicide. But The problem is the protein E6 in the HPV has evolved to destroy this thing too. So the result is cells that get infected with HPV end up with no real mechanism to prevent their cell division and they constantly just acquire more and more mutations. There's also another protein called E5, which is shown to be important for the development of cancer, but it's not as clear what the mechanism behind that is. Uh, So basically the concept of the HPV vaccine is you have to stop the infection before it even occurs, which is a very, very, this is the absolute highest standard for how a vaccine can work. So the vaccine itself, it contains what are called virus-like particles, which is basically just like the membrane of the virus with proteins that are on the virus on it and no ability to replicate, no ability to cause disease. So it basically just has these structural proteins called L1 on them. uh, And it uses the structural proteins from multiple different types of HPV, viruses. And then with the aid of the adjuvant, it can elicit extremely potent and long-lived antibodies to the L1 protein. So that what happens is uh, for HPV to actually cause an infection, it can't really cause it directly to the skin. It has to get in through abrasions. And the idea is that when this happens, there's damage to a blood vessel that causes the antibodies to leak out, and they actually bind the virus before it can initiate an infection. And therefore, it prevents the chain of events that results in HPV-induced cancer.
0: Thank you again. That's a, a nice, comprehensive response uh, that uh, helps to explain both the uh, the mechanism and and the causes of cancer and and how the vaccine can address and preclude that. While we're on the HPV vaccine, uh, HPV vaccine, it's worth noting that for whatever reason, this vaccine is particularly loathed by anti-vaxxers who've invented all kinds of lies and conspiracy theories about its alleged side effects, including infertility, for example. But why is that? Why are anti-vaxxers so intensely triggered by this vaccine above all others?
1: I think that it's multifactorial. Um, I think a big part of it is relatively little of the anti-vaccine movement is really about vaccines. You, you do get those people who are worried about the ingredients and that's certainly understandable, but a lot of times people generally cling to it uh, because of an underlying ideology. And often those ideas, a big one is purity and another one is liberty and another one is the pursuit of control. Um, so the idea, is that this is a vaccine against a sexually transmitted disease. And so, firstly, the notion for a lot of parents that their children will one day be having sex um, is it, it invokes some complex feelings, suffice it to say. And people, um, because of those complex feelings, people worry that by giving this vaccine to their children, they're licensing them, in effect, to have sex. And that I don't think that necessarily is a bad way to look at it per se because people deserve to be protected from disease, but I think that that carries a kind of different valency for them. I think that they worry about promiscuity. I, I think I know they don't really consider unfortunately the very dark and and terrible possibility of a non-consensual sexual encounter Um, and unfortunately that that would be one less thing to worry about. Um. event that that happened which is quite terrible to even think about but unfortunately it is something that you have to consider um I think I think another part is simply the accessibility so the HPV vaccine as far as the vaccines that are routinely administered is new per se it's not new in a literal sense because we have over 30 years of research on it um but it is relatively new on the schedule And that means that it was it was released to the public when we had an internet and forums and chat rooms and parents could post all sorts of scary anecdotes about vaccines and disseminate falsehoods about them that could frighten someone who might not know better, especially an anxious new parent who is utterly terrified of the possibility of doing anything that could harm their child.
0: Yeah, that all makes perfect sense. And actually, it brings me to my next point. We both know that anti-vaxxers are notorious for their opposition to vaccine mandates. And they say that they are fighting to protect their parental rights and the bodily, bodily autonomy of their children. And this of course also feeds into the fear mongering about the HPV vaccine. So anti-vaxxers like to say, my child, my choice. Now, how would you respond to that as an argument against vaccine mandates in general and against vaccines specifically?
1: Well, well, that's complicated. I think that when they use slogans like that or when they say things like health freedom, they're attempting to harken back to the darkish, well, no, dark history of medicine, which was quite paternalistic, basically, until about the 1950s, we lived in the era of doctor's orders. You didn't really have so much consultations. The physician would look at you, evaluate you, they would make a plan and you would do it. There wasn't really any consideration for the unique circumstances of your life, for example. Uh, And that's progressively evolved over time. Now we have this framework known as shared decision-making. So this is where in essence, it holds that the clinician is the source of expertise and the patient is the source of values and together they come to a decision that is essentially mutually satisfactory, but ultimately the patient will have final say owing to that it, that bodily autonomy. Uh, it's actually evolved a little more now because now we have kind of this framework called shared decision making too, where some patients might simply not know their values because they're forced to consider things they've never thought about. So for example, their end of life wishes, right? Like how long Would you like to be on events later? Would you like extraordinary measures? A lot of patients can't really grasp what what that really means and what consequences are associated with that. So in addition to being the source of expertise, you actually have to help the patient to formulate their values uh, as the clinician. But the problem with these perspectives is that these are fundamentally not how pediatric care works because in pediatric care, you aren't making a decision for your body. You are making the decision on behalf of another human being. And owing to that, uh, in general, parents are given considerable latitude when it comes to choices regarding their child's health care, because there's a baseline assumption that they understand the unique circumstances of their child's life better than do other people, and so they are given deference. The problem is that parents don't have medical expertise in general, and for that reason can make catastrophically bad choices regarding their child's care and to deal with this several schemes have arisen to essentially protect the best interests of the child uh, one example is what's known as the harm threshold this basically says that if a supermajority of experts would universally agree that what a parent is proposing is harmful and significantly so they can act against the best wishes against the wishes of a parent and in the best interest of the child so an example of this would be for example a child who has cancer and chemotherapy has a very, very high probability of curing it, but the parent refusing to do it and allowing the cancer to get worse. Or in some cases, an argument could be made that if a high-risk injury exists for tetanus, then uh, if a parent refuses it, it can be done over their objection, although that gets stickier. You generally cannot use this to justify vaccines in large part because Owing to the success of vaccines, the incidence of vaccine-preventable disease has declined to such a point that for any given individual, the probability of getting one is not high enough that you can make this argument. But nonetheless, parents and clinicians uh, who deal in pediatric care have an obligation in the best interest of the child. And to reduce that to basically the whims of the parent and to completely ignore what is best for the child, what is best for their health, to not consider it, I think is not appropriate conduct for a parent.
0: There's also uh, too, in the anti-vax community, there seems to be a general attitude of my child is my property, and therefore I have the sole right of decision-making about what happens with and and to that child, which I, I think is a very regressive mentality and also runs counter to the concept of bodily autonomy that they claim to be defending, ironically enough.
1: Yeah, they don't really grasp bodily autonomy. It automatically fails because it's not about them, it's not about what's being done to their body, which means that it isn't up to them, fundamentally, if you want to take that route. In pediatric care, of course, you have to be paternalistic because you're dealing with infants, and infants can't tell you whether or not they understand the risks, benefits and options available to them and how it could affect their life and quality of life and so on. Um, so that's why you defer to what the medicine, what the science says is best. And then as they get older, you start to progressively involve them in their decisions. There's, um, there's a framework that's commonly used in pediatrics um, that's called the rule of sevens, which basically says that you go every seven years. So for example, from age zero to seven, children don't really participate in decisions regarding their care. From age 7 to 14, you can start to involve them, but ultimately parents will have final say. And then from age 14 and up, you can basically trust that they can carry out decisions for themselves without the need of their parents.
0: Moving on to another common anti-vax argument. This one stems from a guy called Russell Blaylock that you're probably familiar with. He is an anti-vax doctor who claims that vaccines, quote, shift your immune system to a weaker antibody type immune system, end quote, called TH2. What is he talking about? And is there any truth to his claim?
1: All right, now I got to put on my immunology hat. Um, so... Russell Blaylock is talking, in essence, about the different types of immune responses that a person is capable of mounting. Um, So there's this common perception that I've noticed that people sort of think that their immune system is either on or off, and when you've got an infection, it's on, and when you don't have one, it's off. But That's not really how it works. The immune system is always on, it's just doing different things at different times. So the way that it responds is dictated by the kind of threat that you have to deal with. So for example, you would not respond to a fungus in the same way that you would respond to a virus they are completely different pathogens and require different responses so way way back in the past we looked at leprosy infections and we noticed that in general people who got leprosy and they went one of two ways one way was called tuberculoid leprosy and this is associated with a specific pattern of cytokines, which are these like small proteins in essence that instruct other cells what to do. And the other one was called lepromatous leprosy, which is associated with a different pattern of cytokines. And we called the lepromatous pattern Th2 and the tuberculoid pattern Th1. And basically what was observed is in tuberculoid leprosy, patients had a pretty severe course, but they survived quite well. Um, and in Th2, patients were basically unable to control the infection, The course was relatively mild, but it ended up being fatal. The reality is that no immunologist today basically uses the TH1 or TH1, TH2 framework because it is extremely reductive and doesn't capture accurately the complexity of the immune system. Uh, With the TH1 response, we associate that with a type of cell called a T helper one cell or TH1 cell. With the TH2 response, we associate with a type two cell. The problem is, we started trying to apply this model to understand autoimmune diseases. And we started saying some autoimmune diseases are Th1 dominator and there's a Th2 dominator. And then we discovered a third type of cell, which you would think would be called the Th3 cell, but no, it's called the Th17 cell. Uh, And it's so named because it makes a protein called interleukin-17 and they're named for the order that they're discovered in. So that kind of uprooted the whole model because now there was a third type the Th17 uh, cell. And basically, Now it's a little bit, this is a little bit oversimplified, but basically we group the kind of immune response you can make into three categories. So Th1 is generally really effective for viruses and intracellular bacteria. Th2 is really good for large parasites like worms, basically. And then Th3 is mainly for extracellular bacteria and fungi. So each of those, sorry, not Th3, Th17 or type 3. Type three is TH17. I, I, again, the names are dumb. But um, what he's referring to basically when he talks about the shift, it belies a fundamental lack of understanding of how the immune system works because that's not really a thing. The implication there is that you would get infected, you would mount a particular type of immune response, and then you would develop memory cells that reflect the type of immune response you develop. So for example, most of our vaccines work by inducing antibodies against uh, a target antigen of some sort. And the idea is the antibodies will bind the proteins or the sugars on the pathogen, and they will prevent disease or they can prevent infection completely, which aren't the same thing I should point out. But the idea that he's alluding to is that the Th2 response is not as protective and that it's weaker. And this is fundamentally false and there are a number of examples we can point to that this is the case but the reality is that th1 and th2 aren't weaker or stronger on a spectrum they're just different they're intended to respond to different things and furthermore the suggestion that th2 equates to antibodies and th1 doesn't is just untrue because you still make antibodies with the th1 response you you make antibodies in basically any immune response it's pretty hard not to do that um and so the other, the big thing that really makes this fall apart is the fact that memory cells don't have a Th, there's no TH1 memory cell or really TH2 memory cell per se. They get that context from the infection or the vaccine that is provided by, that is provided by antigen presenting cells. They will give them certain signals and tell the helper T cell, whether it needs to become a TH1 cell versus a TH2 cell versus a TH17 cell versus a T regulatory cell or a T follicular helper cell. And there, there are like a million different kinds of helper T cells. We keep discovering new ones, they're all very special. They're like 31 flavors. Um, but the point is anyone who's talking about the Th1, Th2 model today, and attempting to come off as being serious about immunology basically doesn't know what they're talking about. Um, and in particular, the notion that, it's, that vaccines are weakening our immune system is kind of crazy.
0: So to summarize that then blaylock is not only incorrect in in his general claim he's also grossly oversimplifying the aspects of the immune system that he's discussing he is also misrepresenting it by failing to address other aspects such as the th 17 i think you said the th 17 yes. cell and his misrepresenting the role that these particular cells actually play in the immune response and the way that the vaccines themselves um, stimulate and interact with them. Is that a, a fair summary?
1: That is a fair summary, which is why I don't really look to neurosurgeons for my immunology expertise. But actually, there's a really good article on him that talks about how he has these really wacky beliefs, actually. He, like, he thinks that Obamacare was used to euthanize the elderly. And I think one of his other ideas was that like MSG causes cancer or something, which is just ridiculous for the record for any listeners. MSG is completely safe. You literally have it all over your brain. It's the principal excitatory neurotransmitter in your brain. It cannot cause headaches. It never reaches your brain. It's metabolized by your gut cells before it ever gets there.
0: That's brilliant. Yeah, I've got Russell Blaylock on uh, my list of false authorities infographics, and I've provided quite a few links to some of his more bizarre ideas. And he's pretty out there, to put it mildly.
1: He's a character as a character.
0: So my final question, my my final vaccine-related question concerns the flu vaccine, which again has become quite topical this year particularly. Many people refuse to take the annual flu vaccine because one, they say, well, it's not effective enough, so I I don't need to bother. Why would I take a vaccine that's only, say, 20% effective this year? And some people also say, well, I took the vaccine last year and it gave me the flu. So what's the point? I'm not going to run that risk again. Are these reasonable objections?
1: Well, I, I would say no for, for several reasons. Um, firstly, most years, and I mean, of course, it does vary with the particular strain and how well it's predicted, because we know that to be an important facet of the process. The flu vaccine is typically between 40 and 60 percent effective. And that sounds disappointing. But again, you need to have the context. So the thing that I mentioned earlier about r not for influenza, for seasonal influenza, it is just 1.3, which means on average, each person who gets flu will give it to 1.3 other people. And what that actually means for a vaccine is if hypothetically every single person were to get it to prevent transmission of flu, it would need to be only 23% effective, which is really not that high. And we far exceed that most years. I think the lowest it's ever been on record is 19%, but I'd have to double check that. Um, the big thing, though, is even though a fair amount of the time, the flu vaccine is not able to completely prevent infection, but it does prevent disease. And indeed, there is literally a ton of data out there that show that people who receive the flu vaccine and still get the flu, they are far, far better than people who don't get the vaccine and get the flu in terms of ICU admissions. And actually, in fact, heart attacks, there are multiple studies that showed the flu vaccine dramatically can, or, or, I'm sorry, the flu virus the infection can dramatically raise the risk of heart attack in patients um and actually a study showed that flu vaccine is roughly as effective at preventing that as statins uh which is pretty incredible and, so, and you have to take statins every day for quite a long time to see any effect with flu vaccine, you just get it once a season um so regarding that the other part that i often hear that you pointed out is that people think that they got the flu from the flu vaccine And simply put, this is impossible. And the the basic reason for that is because there is no flu virus in the flu vaccine, in the shot at least. Um, There is absolutely no potential for that. What can happen is, well, firstly, one, you might just be feeling the effects of your own immune response. Those really ugly, nasty symptoms that you get when you're sick, that's not the virus, that's not the, the disease, that's your immune system. It's making your body an inhospitable environment for that infection, and that feels uncomfortable. Uh, Alternatively, you could have gotten a cold. A lot of people don't really grasp how serious the flu is. I had the flu when I was around 12 and I've never been anything close to that sick in my life. I thought I was gonna die. I remember just like, my bronchioles felt really, really constricted and they were like filled with mucus. It was just, it was so hard to breathe. And I had like a fever, like 105 and it wouldn't go down no matter what medications I took for like three days and all my joints hurt. And like, I just remember I couldn't get out of bed. It was really, really terrible. Um, so if you had like a mild cold or whatever, it was either that you had a cold or you are reacting to a flu vaccine as you should be but you didn't have the flu in all likelihood. And unfortunately, the other possibility is that you had the flu before you got the vaccine because there's an incubation period, or you got the vaccine and you got flu anyway. And unfortunately, that can happen. But as more people get the flu vaccine, the odds of that happening to you go down. The other piece to this conversation, though, is some people point out that there is a live attenuated flu vaccine, which is given as a nasal spray. And that's true. but if you develop full-blown influenza from that va- from that vaccine, from that live attenuated vaccine, you need to see an immunologist immediately because you have a profound immunodeficiency.
0: Yeah, thank you very much. That clears that up really nicely. In closing, then, who else can you suggest for me to interview on this podcast? Oh,
1: that's a really good question. Um, Dr. Fauci seems to say yes to literally everyone. Um, It's kind of amazing. I don't know if he'd do it now, but if you could get him, that'd be cool. Um, My friend, Dr. Tara Smith is incredible um, at these sorts of things. She's a very excellent vaccine advocate and a professor of epidemiology um, who has done some really amazing research. uh, And she's been on podcasts before a few times. I just don't know if she's available for it, but I definitely recommend reaching out to her
0: that's great. Thank you. And if people want to follow your work online, where can they find you?
1: Uh, I'm on Twitter at E Nirenberg, like my name. And I'm also on Medium at Edward Nirenberg.
0: That's really great. Thank you so much, Edward, for your time. You've been really generous and you've given some fantastic answers. It's been really good to have your uh, your expertise on these issues. Thank you you